Is there a light at the end of the coronavirus tunnel? In the United States, we recently passed a grim milestone. Uh, more than 200,000 people have now died because of the coronavirus pandemic. Even President Trump and many of his staff and associates have uh, been unable to escape this pandemic. They've tested positive. This is still a developing story. And while it's true that in many states in the United States, cases uh, of COVID have been on the decline, there's also been outbreaks in other states. So uh, there's still a question of how far we have to get uh, to have, we have to go to get through this pandemic, but there are, are promising developments uh, headed down the pike in medical technology that we have to look forward to. There are prospects for a vaccine, new treatments, new developments in testing technology. Welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. And today we are going to be discussing the question, how goes the battle with the pandemic? My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. Shortly, I'm going to be joined by uh, Dr. Amish Adalja, who's an expert on pandemic preparedness. But uh, without any further ado, let me now welcome to the podcast, Dr. Adalja. Dr. Adalja is a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. His work is focused on emerging infectious disease, pandemic preparedness, and biosecurity. He's uh, actively practicing infectious disease medicine, critical care, and emergency medicine in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, hi, Amish. Thanks for joining us today. I know your time is really uh, uh, valuable these days because everybody wants to interview you about this subject. Thank you for having me. I do want to remind our viewers and listeners that uh, the, we're going to be talking mostly today about the science of the coronavirus pandemic, not the politics. So please keep that in mind when you are posing your questions, either through Zoom or through YouTube. So Amish, the, uh, the latest breaking news about the COVID pandemic has mostly been about the president. And I know you've been giving all kinds of interviews about this lately. I imagine you've probably uh, had more than you can handle. Um, I want to take a step back from all of that. I want to talk about the bigger picture of how far we are into this pandemic in the United States. And I mentioned at the top that uh, there have been big declines in cases in some parts of the country, outbreaks in other parts of the country, like in the Midwest. Uh, what can you tell us about the big picture here and how we should think about these trends in case numbers uh, and how they compare to other measures that we might uh, use to understand where we are in terms of death rates, hospitalization rates, et cetera? So I would think that the best way to think about this is it's a heterogeneous outbreak. We're not just one geographic location. And there are parts of the country, like the Northeast, that are relatively quiet now when it comes to the coronavirus because they were hit very hard. They put in some mitigation measures, people's behavior changed. But there are other parts of the country where they weren't hit that hard in the spring and they're going to continue to have cases. So for example, your home state of Wisconsin right now is really on the top list of, of crisis right now because hospital, there's, hospital capacity is dwindling there. They're at the highest level of hospitalizations. The same is true in North Dakota where I'm hearing that there's only 20 ICU beds available in the entire state uh, right now. So that means 
for a trauma patient, if there was a mass casualty accident on the highway, where would those people go? So we're still having problems in, in many parts of the country. This is a virus that's not going to go anywhere. There are people that say that this pandemic is over. It's, it's not over. Uh, the virus has established itself in the human population. It's going to be something that we contend with for the foreseeable future. So I think that when we get, we're getting better at dealing with it, meaning that many places have contact tracers, they have some ability to do testing, tracing, and isolating. It's not universal. Things still slip through. They're not even testing, tracing, and isolating at the White House, for example. So there are places that aren't doing that. So we're going to have this seesaw effect where you see some places surges, surge, some places don't surge until we have a, a vaccine that provides probably not even what the first generation vaccines are going to provide, but more of sterilizing measles like immunity. So I do think this is something that we're getting we're going to have to adjust to. And that doesn't mean stay at home orders or shutdown orders. What it means is getting better at risk calculating in our own personal lives about what activities you can and can't do without a major risk. And it's going to, and, and that's, I think, what, we're, what we'll likely see going forward, even probably into well into 2021 uh, and maybe even farther, because this is a, a virus that still can kill vulnerable populations. And though we're getting better at treating people in the hospital and the hospital fatality rate has gotten better because we have new tools and we have new knowledge, uh, it's still the case that people are still dying at rates that are, are really um, still, still very high in, in the hundreds to a thousand per day. So let's talk about some of those new tools. One of the news items connected with uh, the president's case is that when he was admitted to Walter Reed, he was able to get access to a number of experimental treatments, uh, including getting what they call compassionate use exceptions to certain FDA rules. The one that I've heard the most about is an exception for something called monoclonal antibodies. Uh, and the president does seem to be doing well, but can you tell us a little bit more about what that treatment is, uh, about what the evidence is for its effectiveness? We don't want to just look at one case. Uh, and why is it that more people can't get access to this kind of treatment? What would it take to, to get more access? So monoclonal antibodies are basically souped up versions of convalescent plasma. So what you do is you've got a recovered patient, they form antibodies and you can get convalescent plasma from them. But within that group of antibodies that a person makes, there are some that are really, really effective. You harvest those and clone them and then turn them into a drug. So we use monoclonal antibodies, for example, with Ebola. That was what ZMAP was that everybody heard about. So it's a synthetic antibody that you can give to people and it modifies the course of disease. So both Regeneron and Eli Lilly were really working hard to get uh, monoclonal antibodies into, into clinical trials. They're in phase three clinical trials, and we're seeing some promising data that they decrease viral load, that they decrease symptoms. So this might be something that could be a major factor in the future for, for how, we, how we treat people. But we don't have all the data in, and we're only, it's only been released in a press release. Regeneron had a press release. It's not a peer-reviewed study, so we don't know exactly how well it works, but it looks promising so far. So when, what, what happened was the, the only way that you really can get this drug is if you are in a clinical trial. There is a pathway for all drugs that the FDA has called compassionate use. So you can petition, you can talk to the company and ask the, it, all companies have a compassionate use pathway. Some companies don't want to actually give a drug compassionate use because they're nervous if something bad happens and that has to be reported to the FDA. But obviously in this case, they had enough comfort to give this to the president so he would have signed a waiver, waiving away liability, and then, and then got the drug. It's not something that I've seen given on compassionate use other than to the president. Everybody else that's got it has been in the clinical trial. Uh, 
I, it's, I think it's too early to say whether this is the, the, what made the president's trajectory better. We still don't quite have a full understanding of all of his clinical parameters. Dr. Fauci on CNN a couple of days ago thought that he suspected that it was the Regeneron antibody that had some role. And clearly there is evidence that this works in animal models and with other similar diseases. So, so this was the main difference that the president's treatment was from the ordinary American. I give lots of my patients remdesivir and dexamethasone but I don't have access to that, uh, that clinical trial that uh, the Regeneron antibody was. And, it, and I think it's going to be interesting to see if this actually worked. Right now, we don't know if it worked, if it did nothing, or if it, or if it made, him, made him worse. We have no idea because we don't have clinical trial data to say. But so far, so good with the president's case. And I do think it probably helps the case for monoclonal antibodies move forward quicker, uh, that he didn't have an adverse reaction to them. And it might be responsible for uh, the fact that he's had a pretty good course for a 74-year-old man that's obese. A follow-up on that, uh, we, we got a super chat question, thank you, Adam, uh, about uh, something called AB8, which I hadn't heard of, but uh, Googling suggests it's something to do with antibodies. Do you know anything about that? And Adam's wondering, uh, what's the status of that? So AB8 is something interesting, and I'm a big fan of Pittsburgh. I'm sitting in Pittsburgh, and AB8 is a Pittsburgh discovery um, from my old department uh, that I used to be affiliated with, the Division of Infectious Disease at Pitt, along with other people's. So AB8 is a kind of an antibody fragment. It's a very, very small part of an antibody. Antibodies, even though they're tiny, they're, they are kind of big when, when you're look, looking at the nanoscale. And AB8 is an antibody that is just kind of a small part portion of the antibody, the part that's necessary to neutralize the virus. And it's, an, it's gonna take some time before that actually makes its way to uh, people's, into people's veins. But it is a promising way of even miniaturizing the antibody and getting it to a level that it's very, very small, that makes it easy to, to administer the dosing, all of that becomes a little bit different and it's more exquisitely targeted, but it's not ready for prime time yet. It's gonna take some time to, to develop it out of the animal models to something that can be given in humans. And right now it's still in the animal model phase, but it is promising. And it's another example of, of Pittsburgh's prowess, I would say. So can you say a little more about the timeline for some of these kinds of treatments, uh, like the monoclonal antibodies, maybe the AB8 as well? You mentioned that, I think you said that the monoclonal antibodies were in phase three. When would, supposing those trials are successful, when do you suppose uh, you would no longer have to get compassionate use uh, exceptions? This is an interesting question because we thought we would have monoclonal antibodies by now and the phase three trials would be complete. But you, you know, paradoxically, what slowed them down was the president's promotion of convalescent plasma because the people that were in those trials were saying, well, convalescent plasma is now available with emergency use authorization. People are talking about convalescent plasma. I'm not going to enroll. So these monoclonal antibody trials had slow enrollment because convalescent plasma, not the president's support of it, the emergency use authorization, as well as the Mayo Clinic's, Clinic's expanded access program, push people uh, towards convalescent plasma, and it took longer for them to enroll. So I do think we will likely have monoclonal antibodies available to the public before a vaccine. I, I think uh, there's a good podcast today, if you listen to The Daily on the New York Times, um, there's a podcast where they actually talk about, uh, Don Mc, Donald McNeil, one of the journalists, talks a lot about monoclonal antibodies as a bridge for people who are more interested, uh, a bridge before we get a vaccine. So I do think they're coming, but it's been slow going because of convalescent plasma kind of crowding out the space. And just as a, a refresher, what is the difference between convalescent plasma, which I I'm assume also has something to do with antibodies, and the monoclonal ones? Is it uh, natural versus artificial? Is that the basic? 
difference? Sort of. So convalescent plasma is the blood of recovered individuals that has multiple different types of antibodies against the virus. And you, you, you go just like you're giving a your blood donation and then they give that to somebody else. What, what monoclonal antibodies do is they take people's antibodies, the convalescent, something similar to convalescent plasma, and they look because there's so many different antibodies and like we want the best ones and they take the best ones out of there and then they clone those ones and make them synthetically. So the Regeneron antibody that the Regeneron product that the president got is a cocktail of two monoclonal antibodies that were selected from recovered patients that and then synthetically made that are very potent because a lot of the antibodies might not be that great. Uh, only some of them are really neutralizing and really effective. And these are these are synthesized using stem cells, if I'm if I remember correctly, not necessarily fetal ones, but some kind of stem cells. Is that right? Yeah, they do. Often they put them into into a cell line, and I'm obviously I'm not an expert at how you make a monoclonal. I know in 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 broad strokes, and you clone it into a you you clone it into a cell line, and sometimes those cell lines are uh, stem cells or embryonic stem cells that are used, and then you basically. Uh, kind of churned them out in a factory, factory-like uh, fashion. It was, a, I think, the, the monoclonal antibody discovery uh, received a Nobel Prize uh, several years ago because it was such a game changer. And we use monoclonal antibodies a lot in oncology and rheumatology uh, and infectious disease a little bit. Um, infectious disease has kind of been a lag, uh, lagging uh, industry for uh, monoclonal antibodies, but they're becoming increasingly uh, common to, to as an approach because they can be made very quickly and scaled very fast, and they seem to be. Uh, highly effective when they're deployed. We just got another super chat qu question from Kyle, uh, which is a good segue to our next topic. Kyle's asking what the ideal testing system would be. And I was going to ask you about testing next because, well, it's one thing to talk about the, the, the treatments and the therapeutics for people who've already been tested. Uh, it's another thing to talk about how we can prevent people from getting uh, infected in the first place. And testing is obviously one part of that if you want to isolate people to stop the spread. So uh, I, I noticed that in the story about the president that many of his associates, many of his associates were able to get access to various kinds of rapid COVID tests. That's part of how we know this outbreak was about to happen. It's part of how he was able to get into the hospital quickly enough. Um, but these kinds of rapid tests aren't easily available to many people. Uh, I just actually authored a piece about something called rapid antigen tests. Uh, you may have seen it. It's a, These are quick and cheap tests uh, for contagiousness, not so much for diagnostic purposes, but they haven't yet been proved, uh, approved by the FDA. Uh, I'm, could, you, could you give me your perspective on why they've not been approved, what it would take to get them approved, uh, otherwise evidence about their effectiveness? So the, to step back one step from the question, testing answers two, there's, you have, testing is done to answer a question. And there are multiple different questions you can answer with testing. One is, what is my patient sick with? When they're in the hospital, when they're coming to you at, your doctor's, at the doctor's office with symptoms. The other is, is this person contagious or what's going on in the community with this virus? And the FDA is very focused on the, the, the former. What is my patient sick with? A diagnostic test. But what that diagnostic, when you take those diagnostic tests, the PCR-based tests, they're very sensitive and they don't necessarily tell you whether or not you're contagious. What I think that the paradigm needs to be is a way for people to know their status, to know when they go outside, when they go play a sport, when they go to the to movie theater or fly on a plane, whether they're contagious to others. And for that, you don't need the same level of sensitivity. It's a totally different question you're asking. So there are individuals like Michael Mina at Harvard, who's been a pioneer on this, to that have said, we need to dispense with the PCR test for contagiousness 
We just have to use that in hospitalized patients when we need to know what's, ca what's causing their illness. For other people, having an ability to just swab themselves, maybe with their saliva and know, am I contagious? Am I not contagious? I, I go out and then I go and do things. That would be what, what, what a game-changing uh, solution to the problem that we have now when nobody knows their status. Nobody knows if they're infected at any given time because they don't have access to those tests. So these tests are not gonna be the same thing as PCR. So they're not gonna pick up low levels of virus that are, maybe are not clinically significant at the time or not, or not reflective of someone's contagiousness. But what I think the problem is, is that it's very hard. The, the FDA has certain pathways and things that they evaluate it, and, and they have a lot of bureaucratic thinking of how to approve products or license products. And there's just not a clear path. And there is an effort underway to, to push the FDA. I think, I mean, everybody recognizes the benefit of this. It's just there's so much bureaucratic inertia uh, for, for so many different reasons that they haven't found a clear pathway for something like this to be approved. But I do think that this is something we will see that people will be able to get home tests that are, that are cheap and easy to do. There are already rapid antigen tests that are going towards that way. For example, the Abbott the Abbott antigen test, not the PCR test, the antigen test is $5. So it's getting down, it's getting cheaper, it's getting simpler. Uh, but I do think this would be some, a way that you could test yourself before you do things. And one of the interesting things happening is a lot of the tourism and travel industry have now jumped onto this bandwagon, which I think will push it forward. So imagine like, if you're Delta Airlines and you don't want any any contagious person, you make everybody do this. So now that you've got Delta and United and these big uh, airline companies, and tourism places that are frustrated because their, their business model is completely shot if there's contagious people there, they're going to be pushing forward for this as well. So I think there is some synergy and hope that we will get this sooner rather than, uh, rather than later. Uh, and I do think that the commercial industries are going to push, push what was kind of an academic exercise all the way forward. Very interesting. Uh, as one follow-up to that, uh, let me ask kind of a devil's advocate question because I mentioned the president was able to get access to some of these rapid tests. That's how we know that he was infected. And yet, critics will say uh, it wasn't enough to stop this outbreak from happening at the judicial nomination event. So is, are, are these a panacea? Are these uh, going to stop all spreading? Or is it, is it uh, something more modest than that? They're not a panacea. You still have to couple it. And if you look at the, the Supreme Court announcement event, Part of it was outdoors, part of it was indoors for Amy Coney Barrett. There was not any modicum of social distancing going on there. Very few people wearing face coverings. And then some of the events moved indoors. So the, the White House uses, my understanding is that they use the Abbott ID now, which is a PCR-based test, one that's been known to have a lot of false negatives. It's not the most sensitive of the PCR tests because you kind of give up sensitivity when you want rapidity. So what happened there? I'm, we still don't know because the White House is refusing to allow the CDC to do contact tracing. It's refusing to allow the, the Washington, D.C. Uh, Department of Public Health to do contact tracing. So we can't understand what happened and where what the timeline of infections are. We don't even know when the president's last negative test was because they refused to tell us. Uh, although he, exposed, he clearly exposed people in Bedminster in New Jersey and put other people at risk. So, so that makes it very hard to know what happened there. So was there a testing, was there um, a false negative and there was somebody in the crowd there that allowed this to spread? Was it somebody that didn't get tested because not everybody got tested? Were there some positives which they just kind of said, okay, we're gonna let them slide? Did people self-collect their specimens and somebody just didn't do a good job? So we don't know where the failure happened. But in general, you have to remember that, that all that the president has been very out front 
exposing, putting himself in situations where most people wouldn't in, in terms of COVID-19. And it took him months and months and months and months to get infected. So his test, the testing of the president at frequent intervals, even though I know he's been skipping some, uh, did, did um, prevent him from getting infected this long. And it gave us a huge head start to know these people were infected and to know who to test. Obviously, this isn't ideal because the White House has been very opaque and, and obfuscatory with everything here. So this isn't the ideal example of how testing would work because most people would be much more compliant with contact tracing than, than actual government officials, who, who, which is kind of paradoxical. So, so I don't think that this is a failure of testing, but just remember, it's not a panacea. There's going to, each test has operating characteristics. There's going to be some false positives and false negatives. It takes some interpretation to know what's going on. And testing is only one moment in time. So whatever your interval is, you could still be incubating and then pop positive in between. And we've seen that, for example, with sports teams like the NFL, the Major League Baseball, base, baseball. So unless you have like a bubble, the way the National Basketball Association or the National Hockey League did, you're, you're going to have, testing can, can do so much, but not everything, but it's much better than what we would have without it. So I want to talk a little bit more about another aspect of the uh, president's controversy without focusing on the president, uh, and that's with regards to masks. There are a, question, a few questions that came in uh, from Zoom about uh, what do you think of masks uh, and the controversy about it. Uh, the president had been skeptical to some extent about their importance and there was a lot of commentary on his uh, taking his mask off in certain settings. Now, stepping aside from his case, looking at the general issue, uh, what's your estimate of what the latest evidence indicates about the effectiveness of masks for preventing the spread, also for protecting oneself? Uh, where do you stand on that these days? So this is a complicated subject and it has a long history because in the past with other viruses, when we've had the general public mask for influenza, for example, big studies done, they didn't show any decrease in transmission. So many of us, when all of this masking came out, masking recommendations came out, were initially skeptical because we were looking at old data. We were looking at the data from the past and we had thought about coronaviruses as not a disease where people didn't know they were infected. We knew obviously any, I've always said anybody that is infected, that has symptoms, if they have to be around people, they need to wear a mask. That's always the case. The question was, do people without symptoms need to wear masks? And what we what we learned is a couple of things. One is that there are such situations where people are pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic, and they're able to spread the virus. And they're people that have symptoms that they that they're attributing to something else. Maybe they're a little bit hungover and they've got a headache. Maybe they were at the gym and their muscles ache, and they and they think, oh, that's what caused it. But it really is coronavirus. And because we don't have cheap tests to know our status. There are people out there that are walking around every day that are infectious. And we know that if you wear a mask appropriately, not leaving your nose out, um, putting it over, covering your face and mouth or a face shield where you're a barrier, you can, it can serve as some form of source control. And there is data when, with masking that, that this is decreasing transmission from individuals in places that have done and have seen a decrement in cases. It's not a panacea. You have to still do it with social, you have to, it's not a substitute for social distancing. But that data is starting to emerge. And that's why most of us now who were skeptical initially have changed because we saw new data. We saw we learned more about the coronavirus and pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic spread. And we saw that some of the, that people can wear these masks appropriately. Not every mask is the same. If you're wearing a bandana or wearing one of those one-way valve masks, which is completely paradoxical because that actually works as a, a one of my colleagues called it a shotgun of, of coronavirus coming out of your mask. If you're wearing one of those that has a one-way valve that allows you to 
reality. So not all, so not all masks are the same, but, but I do think that there is enough evidence now to say this should be something that becomes a standard protective measure that people use. And it doesn't necessarily always have to be a mask. It can be a face shield as well. And, and it, obviously if you're 200 feet away from a person, you don't necessarily have to wear a mask, but when you're in places where you cannot social distance, I think that there is enough data now to, to, to say this. And I think if we didn't have pre-symptomatic spread, if we had a way to know our status, my, my position on masks might be a little different. But in the current state and context right now, I think this is, this is a tool that uh, I think will be important to, to gain control in the absence of a vaccine. That's very clarifying. So let's uh, put a few pieces together. We've talked about uh, both testing and about masks. Uh, I'm gonna get to the question of the vaccine pretty soon, but uh, there's still a lot of questions surrounding when we'll get the vaccine. And part of uh, what's important is uh, how do we deal with the problem until we do? And I know that there are some figures out there who think that if we were to wear masks uh, more, and if we were to get access to cheaper, better, faster testing, we could even maybe get the pandemic under control without necessarily having a vaccine on hand. So I, I'm curious to know if you agree with that. Uh, you think that's maybe too hopeful? Uh, and then we'll talk about the vaccine shortly. I think it's in the realm of possibility because if you look at a country like Taiwan, that's basically what they did and they're having concerts with 15,000 people now. So you can do this. I think it's very hard because it involves the, the population taking this seriously and changing their behavior and not putting other people uh, at risk. But I think that's, it's been very challenging. We've got mixed messaging all throughout this pandemic, but it is technically something that you could do if people, if people uh, adopted those behaviors and we had the ability to know our status. I mean, I think that would change the whole thing. Remember, we, you know, we, we have many infectious diseases that are out there and they're controlled because we have certain measures that we use. We just don't have anything at our hands with, with, with COVID-19 to be able to change, to use it to modify our behavior. So I do think this is another reason why testing, the more testing that we can do, the better that we will be, will be in the long run in the absence of a vaccine and even after a vaccine. A follow-up question to that, this is based on really nothing but anecdotal evidence on my own part, but it to me, it seems like I see more people wearing masks, at least where I live in Orange County. And I know that our case rate has gone down quite a lot, even as we've reopened. And I wonder, is there any evidence beyond the anecdotal evidence that's actually changing behavior uh, that is uh, you know, making things better in certain parts of the country? What? The best data source for that is really looking at mobile phone data to see how quick, how, how much people are moving. And there was data that as mobile phones were less likely to be mobile, there were, there were decreases in cases. So th that's one very crude cut of changes in behavior uh, that do it. But, but I don't think you're going to find that kind of gran like granular type of data that, that you're looking for other than something like that people's decreasing their social circles and you infer that from their, their mobility that that's decreasing cases. Uh, so I'm not sure if that answered the question or not, but. Oh, it did, thank you. Um, so let's, let's talk about the vaccine. I've heard and read that there are dozens, if not hundreds of different uh, vaccines currently undergoing different uh, trials. Uh, it's obviously the big thing that I think a lot of people have been waiting for what can you do to bring us up to date on the state of the development of a vaccine and 
follow-up to that is going to be, how are we going to know when we have one that's really safe? How, uh, if it's approved by the FDA, is that going to be sufficient evidence? That would be one question. So we've got three vaccines right now that are in phase three clinical trials in the United States. The AstraZeneca vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, and the Moderna vaccine. The AstraZeneca vaccine is one that's on pause in the U.S., the clinical trials, because of some safety concerns, although trials have resumed in the United Kingdom and other parts of the world. It's likely, of, of those three in the United States, the Pfizer vaccine is likely to cross the finish line first. They're probably going to be able to submit for emergency use authorization, the amount of data, probably in, in, in late October or maybe November. And that likely will be a, a vaccine that we get an emergency use authorization, probably for healthcare workers and maybe high-risk individuals, and it's not going to be ready in mass quantities. Remember, it's a two-dose vaccine, so that's 660 million doses. So that's not going to be something that we have immediately available to us. I, as a healthcare worker, may have access to something like that at the end of the year if everything goes perfectly, but I do think it's probably going to be well into 2021 before we have a vaccine. And these first-generation vaccines may not be something that provides measles-like immunity from the measles vaccine-like immunity. They may be more like the flu vaccine, that they protect you from death or protect you from being hospitalized. So they may end up being supplanted by second generation vaccines that are kind of at the back of the pack that you're not hearing about. I do think it's gonna be challenging to convince the public about the safety of this vaccine. We have an anti-vaccine movement that is already poised to attack this vaccine before it's even been uh, developed. And there is concerns about the FDA process. And I know that there's a lot of issues with how the FDA, the FDA approving drugs, but you have to remember that that's the only standard that we have now and companies try to meet that standard because it's, it's what they know, it's incorporated into their whole workflow. So if, they're, if there is meddling in the emergency use authorization process, if something that, if there are questions about safety that really would be adjudicated anywhere, even if there were no FDA, by the pharmaceutical companies themselves or by, by professional societies like the American Academy of Pediatrics or the Infectious Disease Society of America, uh, we have to be careful that, that, that th those things are not jumped over. We've already seen convalescent plasma and hydroxychloroquine have different standards applied to them, which I think is, is concerning because if people don't take the vaccine because they don't trust the process, despite the fact that, that, that you know, I know this audience is, is not a fan of the FDA, but if people don't take the vaccine because they're worried about the, the process has been tampered with, that vaccine is gonna be useless. And we're still going to be facing the, 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 the virus without a vaccine. Remember, we wanna get 70 to 80% of the people vaccinated. So we need people to have confidence in this vaccine. And I think that the politicization of the whole process has made it very much hard, harder to get this, get this through. Remember in H1N1, it was this tried and true flu vaccine. Only 23% of Americans got that pandemic vaccine uh, because they were nervous about, about it being a new vaccine. So I think this is gonna be a very big challenge. And what are you hearing about the uh, prospects for distributing that vaccine, even if it does get approved? And even if we decide that it's safe, uh, what are the logistical hurdles and barriers that uh, companies and clinics and hospitals have to try to overcome to get that to people? It's gonna be the biggest vaccine delivery project probably in the history of the world, because this is gonna be a two dose vaccine. So you've gotta bring people back. So that already makes it harder. These vaccines, the, the mRNA vaccines need to be kept at an extreme cold temperature, what, what's called an extreme cold chain, minus 70 degrees centigrade, which means that this isn't something you can keep on hand at a doctor's office or a drugstore or even a hospital. So you're gonna to have to have mobile freezers that I think UPS is working on that, that are in different towns. And then you can take those, the lots and they can only 
only stay a couple of hours in a normal freezer before they become non-viable. So that's very, very challenging. We have to think about things that you, don't, you, you probably haven't thought about for a long time, like the glass that the, the vials are kept in, or the rubber stoppers, or the syringes, and the needles, and the alcohol swabs. That's a lot of supply chain that has to be put into place. So this is going to be a major logistical challenge. That's why the Department of Defense is involved in big companies that are really good at logistics, like UPS, as well as McKesson, which is a major uh, company that works with healthcare industry. So this, is, this really has a lot of moving parts, and you should expect hiccups to happen. Uh, but, and it's important that they start planning now, because this is going to, when the vaccine is available, we, we need to have this well-coordinated and figure out what the kinks are ahead of time. And some of these barriers that you mentioned, you mentioned the cold storage issue uh, related to the fact that this was a particular type of vaccine. Uh, is that something that's inherent in the fact that it's a vaccine for COVID or is that just uh, accident to the fact that these are the types that they've been working on first and there's some prospect that maybe other COVID vaccines later on wouldn't face these same barriers? It's the second. The, the fact that two of the leaders are mRNA vaccines, they're going to require this extreme cold chain. There are going to be, there are more traditional vaccines, like I said, at the back of the pack, like Sanofi is making something, uh, all, all of the other companies that, that aren't the first to market, and it's by design because they're not using these new platform technologies. They're doing it the old tried and true way of making vaccines. They're at the back of the pack, but those may be much more easier to administer, especially if we think about the developing world where there's unstable electricity and very hard, very hard to keep a cold chain even for the measles vaccine. You know, it's very hard to even keep something in a fridge in some parts of the, in some parts of the world. So that's gonna be important for the developing world and their vaccination programs. Could you say a little bit more about what is new and unique about this mRNA vaccine technology that I, I don't remember hearing anything about it more than, you know, from more than a few years ago? So mRNA, so mRNA stands for messenger RNA, so messenger ribonucleic acid. So that is what is used, what cells use to make a protein. So you take the mRNA and you translate that into a protein. And what we're doing with mRNA vaccines is we're figuring out what is the protein of interest on the virus. So for, for SARS-CoV-2, it is the spike protein. So they sequence it, they get the mRNA from it, and they basically give a person the mRNA. That mRNA molecule travels into your cells and your cellular machinery translates that into the spike protein, which then gets that emanates from your cells and then your immune system reacts to it. So it's very elegant and very easy because all you need to do is sequence, sequence the virus and then you have a vaccine. So it's, it's completely predictable that the mRNA vaccines were the first through the gate because it's very easy. It's a low barrier to make a vaccine candidate. And this is a technology that they've been adapting for other viruses, other, other infectious diseases, as well as for cancer. And we don't have any mRNA vaccines that are available now for the, for the public to consume, but this is a way that we think well, vaccines may be made more easily in the future. And it may be the way that we can make emerging infectious disease vaccines because it's so easy and there's not a lot of cost to it. And they can be making mRNA vaccines for lung cancer or for tumors and at the same and just switch the, switch the program and make it for a, a virus. So this is a very promising technology. Moderna has been one of the leaders. Other companies are now involved in it. Uh, so, so I do think that this is changing the way we think about vaccines. And, and it will, the fact that mRNA vaccines are in the spotlight is gonna be, important even going forward in the future, because if they do well here, this will be a whole new game-changing advance in vaccinology. So, and just to clarify, this is, this, if it's approved, this would be the first mRNA vaccine to come on the market for the public? Yes, yes. Very interesting. This is the first one that's even made it this far into phase three trials. Hmm. Great. Well, we uh, should 
uh, I have one more question I want to ask you, but I want to tell people that now is a good time if you uh, have a question to drop it into the Q&A module in Zoom. I see that there's a number we've gotten already, and I'll look through those momentarily. Again, I'll remind you about the super chat option. We got a few uh, nice donations that way, but that's uh, we can we can still do more there. Uh, I said that we weren't going to focus on the politics, but I do have one uh, at least obliquely political question uh, about about the, the pandemic. And uh, we've been talking about clinical interventions. There's also something that I think uh, people in your discipline call non-clinical interventions, uh, moves by governments to uh, restrict movement of people, uh, such as lockdowns. And uh, there has been some news recently. Uh, there was a prominent story in the New York Times, for instance, talking about Sweden, uh, which is uh, notoriously uh, did never never imposed a national lockdown, and the the way the author of the article describes it, Sweden has still been doing pretty well, uh, at least compared to other European countries. Uh, what can do you have thoughts on the evidence from Sweden uh, in comparison to other European countries? Is this some kind of evidence of uh, herd immunity having been achieved? What are the implications for how we should think about these kind of national lockdown policies in the future, if any? So if you look at Sweden's data today, they're actually on an upswing. The last 14 days, cases have been rising, which, which tells you that they haven't reached herd immunity. They maybe have 20% at most of the citizens of Stockholm. Herd immunity is probably going to need at least 40% in, in some modeling studies, but more likely higher than that. But just Sweden can be used to justify, they, they, people look at the data and they can find what they want. It's almost like tea leaves. So I'm going to try and debunk a little bit about Sweden. So it is true that they did not impose lockdowns. But, if, but they did have certain non-pharmaceutical interventions that they put into place. Limits on gatherings, less than 50. They encouraged everybody to work from home. And, they, and if you look at mobile phone mobility data, which I mentioned earlier, it went down substantially. So people were taking those actions voluntarily. But what is different about Sweden's approach is that they did have, if you look at the excess mortality of Sweden compared to other countries, it is very high. And what happened was a lot of societal decisions, which I don't think make people think about so much. So if you're going to do that, they still need to do test, trace, isolate. They did not test, trace, and isolate. And their nursing homes, 7% of the nursing home population died. They also had, they also rationed care. So if you had a body mass index of over 40 and you went to the hospital and you needed ICU care, no. It was just as a rule, you're not getting it. If you were 80 years old and you needed an ICU, no, you're not gonna get it. If you needed oxygen in a nursing home, no. They weren't doing it. So they, they did make these types of decisions that kind of reflected their societal values. Here, you know, I can remember just a couple of weeks ago, like doing heroic measures on a 94 year old, which probably was futile care, but we do that here a little bit more than in other countries. So, so I do think that you have to, to, to take Sweden's example. And there are good, there, I, I don't think it's obviously a wrong approach or an obviously right approach, but I do think that, it, that there's a lot more to it than what's superficially reported. So, and I don't, and it's also important to remember that nobody thinks that lockdowns, not even the people that you consider advocates of lockdowns, as that, that's the best, the sharpest public health tool to use. You have to remember that the only reason that that happened was because there were so many failures in January, February, and March that nobody knew what was going to happen in New York City that, and then everybody just extrapolated that. And it was very blanket and broad and didn't make sense, but that's the rationale behind it. And I think the Swedish approach, there is something to learn from it, 
but you have to really dig deep and actually understand what happened there and what didn't happen there because there's many misconceptions about what happened in Sweden. And I do think if we would, if, if Sweden would have protected the nursing home population, I think it would be considered a shining example. But you know, I, I always use Taiwan as my example because they, 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 they jumped into action in 2019, in December 31st, just on a, on a rumor of what was going on in China. That's the way you want to do it. Yeah, I think it's, it's worth my mentioning, uh, just to clarify the, uh, the stance of the Institute, and not necessarily the same as your stance, uh, Amish, that, um, I mean, so the Taiwan example is one that uh, comes up a lot in things that we've written on this subject. Uh, Ankar Gatte wrote a major white paper uh, called A Pro-Freedom uh, Approach to Infectious Disease. He uses the Taiwan example as a, a kind of paradigm case of the way a government should respond to an outbreak of a disease like this, where the focus is on testing, tracing, and isolating, not on, not on lockdowns. Uh, and I'll give uh, information about how to look at that paper later for those who are interested. Um, I agree with the white paper. I'm just trying to give the rationale for why lockdowns happen. It's, it's me more as a commentator on what public health people were thinking and, and, and what kind of debates are going on rather than whether or not it was right or wrong. Uh, you know, I do think that mass gatherings are a special category where you definitely have that, that there is a when you have an uncontrolled outbreak that you have to be aggressive about that and nobody has the right to infect other people so but but you have to go to test those people. So there's a cascading group of a bunch of failures that that ended up put us in the situation that we're still in. Now that's very clarifying and I especially appreciate uh, your your comments on the Sweden case because yeah I think you're right <laughs> a lot of people will read it like tea leaves and it's it's an anecdotal data point that has to be uh, considered along with a lot of other data so that's very useful. So let's let's open this up for questions I think you have about uh, 10 more minutes is that correct Amish? Yeah because you have to go to another interview so we've had uh, a number of questions come in through Zoom about uh, case counting and uh, whether or not there's a significant amount of undercounting of the amount of uh, COVID that's actually out there. And certainly given the limitations that we have on testing so far in this country, that sounds at least plausible to me. Um, what's your perspective? Is there any way to actually estimate the undercounting given that it's undercounting? It's hard, to under, it's hard to estimate. You can only do that with antibody tests and try and figure out what's going on. And I know that this is happening. My friend texted me just before this conversation. She said, I'm in line with my daughter to get a rapid test. I'm leaving. I've been here for two and a half hours. So, I mean, that, that's, so there definitely are people who are discouraged from testing because it takes too long. We don't have the capacity. So we know we're only probably getting, most estimates are six to tenfold. Uh, we're, we're six to tenfold lower uh, in terms of the cases. So we don't know. There's a lot of dark matter out there of people that are infected that we don't count. But it's definitely been the case since the very beginning that we're only getting a fraction of what the actual cases are. Good. So uh, another question, um, more on just the, the pure medical issue. Uh, we have a question in Zoom asking regarding the serious non-respiratory effects, effects of COVID-19, for instance, on the heart, brain, and liver. How prevalent are these in terms of percentages of COVID patients who experience these problems? Does blood oxygen level play a role in these cases? I know that uh, uh, there's been some discussion of what the president's blood oxygen level has been, but I guess the broader point of the question here is uh, about damage that can be done by the disease aside from fatality and even aside from that on the lungs and how serious is that to, uh, to consider? 
So people who are sick that are in the ICU that are hospitalized, they're going to get other organ involvement other than the lungs. But the question that I think the questioner is asking is about mild cases that end up having cardiac problems, neurologic problems. This, I think it's, it's rare for mild cases to have them, but they do occur. It's not zero. And I think we don't have a good handle on how common this, this occurs. Clearly, when you're in the hospital, you're at risk for multiple organs being involved. And the coronavirus does cause blood clotting, which then allows it to have major manifold effects all through the body with strokes, with kidney damage, and it also can infect the heart directly and, and affect how efficiently it contracts. We still, even though we have a lot of data, we still don't know how often this occurs. We can't say 10% of people get this and 15% get that. I don't think we have that kind of granular data yet to be able to, to say that, but it does occur more so in hospitalized patients, but it is occurring in milder patients as well to some lesser degree. It's rare in mild patients, but it, does, but it is something we have to think about, especially when you're talking about herd immunity, because if you're a young person, you could still be left, you may, you may not die, you may not be hospitalized, but you could be left with some, some issue from that virus. So I think it's, it's important to keep that in mind when you're thinking about what risks you wanna take as a young person. A uh, related question also about uh, prognosis uh, from Zoom. Someone asks, is it still the elderly and those with compromised immune systems or underlying conditions that have the highest chances for death or the most severe symptoms? And maybe I could broaden yes, that definitely... a bit to say who, who, who besides them perhaps are also at higher risk. So the, I was just on a call yesterday looking at Medicare claims data for COVID-19 and the average age of death was around 78. So it is definitely older people that are representing the, the deaths, the, most of the deaths. And that's clear with nursing home data as well. Hypertension, obesity, compromised immune system, people are on immune suppressing medications. So somebody maybe with rheumatoid arthritis, it's on a drug. Those are the people that we're seeing, diabetics. The, the, the people that we would expect to see be at high risk for severe disease. And that's why people were worried about the president because he's 74 years old and he's obese and, and has some evidence of cardiovascular disease. So that's the, that's the prototype of a person who gets into trouble with this virus. But it doesn't mean that younger people don't always, it's not zero in younger people. And some of the younger people do have obesity, diabetes. Uh, one in five Americans, I think, has a, a condition that puts them at higher risk for severe disease. And related to that, uh, there's a, a often a lot of debate that you see on social media about how the lethality of this virus compares to something like the seasonal flu. And uh, from the data that I've seen, if you, if you at least average, uh, the, the average fatality seems to be about three, uh, three times higher than the flu. Am I correct that that goes up even higher if you then look at some of these risk groups? Yes, so it's it not does. Just an this average is, anymore. Yeah, it's not, it's not influenza. You might see that if you look at younger people, it might not, it may look comparable, but once you get into individuals with high risks or with advanced age, uh, this clearly is different than the flu. The flu doesn't kill 200,000 people yeah, in, the, in the matter of you know, six, six to eight months. Uh, the flu in the worst year that I remember on record outside of a pandemic was 80,000 people who died um, from, the, from the flu. So this is, this is something that is a couple magnitudes higher than, than influenza. And while it spares children the way that influenza doesn't, and it spares pregnant women the way influenza doesn't, it does take an exacting toll on other parts of the population. And, uh, and it's not the same. It, it, I wouldn't equate the two. Well, you've got just a few minutes. So let me close with a few quick practical questions that have come up. There are people asking questions about uh, what you think is uh, safe to do at restaurants. Should, should we be going to restaurants? Likewise, movie theaters. 
So this is all hard to answer because everybody wants doctors to give them a yes or no answer. And I always have to go back to how important is it to, to go to a restaurant? How important is it to you to go to a movie theater? And it's, everybody's gonna have a different risk tolerance and everybody's gonna have different risk factors for severe disease. But you can take some common sense steps to try and make it a little bit safer. So if you're going to a restaurant, if you can sit outside, sit outside. Maybe don't go to the place that you see is not social distancing. If, if it looks like the hottest restaurant on the block, probably that's not the, it's probably the hottest for another reason, not just because of its popularity, uh, probably because coronavirus is there as well. So think about going to less crowded places, outdoors. Uh, movie theaters are gonna be difficult because it's indoors. We know transmission is, is accelerated indoors and you may not want to wear your mask when you're eating popcorn. All of that makes it a little bit harder to do that. No activity is going to be without risk. That's the important point. You can't get the risk down to zero. So you're going to have to look at your own values and what, and what you think is, what, what risks you think are worth taking. And it's going to be different for each person. But just know that the virus is there with you. And, and there are some little tips, like going outdoors, wearing a face covering, trying to avoid crowds, washing your hands a lot, not touching your face. All of that can make it a little bit safer. But we're going to have to learn to get risk calculation much better as we move through this pandemic because uh, this is going to be what we have to adjust to. And it, it, people get mad when I say a new normal, but this virus uh, has established itself and it's not going anywhere. So we have to get better at, uh, at learning how to judge risk. Well, I think our time is up and that you need to get to another interview. So thanks very much for joining us, Seamus. I know that your time is very uh, valuable these days, uh, but we really appreciate your time and your expertise on this topic. Thank you for having me. And I'll just uh, wrap us up with a few uh, notes. So there were a few things that came up in conversation today I want to tell people about. Uh, first of all, uh, just as a little background, if you'd like to hear more about uh, Dr. Dolge's views on this subject, on how we can get through the pandemic, I'll uh, recommend an older essay of his from back in, I think it was March. It's called COVID-19, A Path Forward. Uh, you can uh, Google that, it's on Medium, but otherwise there's a quick URL to bit.ly slash COVID hyphen path that you can use. I mentioned also that I recently authored an article on the rapid antigen tests and uh, the reasons that the FDA has so far held them back and uh, reasons I think these are not uh, very good reasons. Uh, check that out. Uh, it's on New Ideal. It was originally published in Real Clear Policy. Quick link to that is bit.ly slash FDA hyphen ignorance. And also there's the policy white paper that I mentioned earlier by our senior fellow Ankar Gatte, a pro-freedom approach to infectious disease. It's a lengthy white paper outlining uh, the Institute's position on what proper government policy should be in the time of a pandemic and on how our current administration and also many governments around the world have failed to live up to that. That is also on New Ideal. If you go to newideal.ainran.org slash pandemic hyphen response. And as always, if you have thoughts about today's episode, if you have questions about it that you'd like to uh, uh, get uh, more information about, if you have suggestions for future episode topics for this podcast, uh, please send us an email to newideal at einran.org. We can't answer all of these emails, but we definitely take a look at all of them. And there have been episodes we've done in the past that have been inspired by topics that people, that our viewers have suggested. So thanks very much. And I look forward to seeing you all again for another episode of New Ideal, uh, this time next week as well. Have a good day. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. 
This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.